fellowship and uh, with dinner afterwards, you need to let us know you're coming for that. Real important that we do that. So please, you might even right now take your connection card and even put on there how many from your family are going to be here for the Legacy um, Banquet that's right after the service on that Sunday, the 3rd. But next Sunday morning, we're going to do something very special. We've done it both in Legacy Number 1 and Legacy Number 2 where we circled the building and had a time of prayer at the close of our worship service, that second worship service. Well, we're not going to circle the building next uh, next week. At the end of that service, we're going to go out into the the back parking lot and and circle out there and pray together. You know, the back parking lot that we lovingly refer to as the Dust Bowl, uh, so that you might begin to realize what it is that needs to happen. I was sharing with the first service why it's so important. All the almost everything we've done through Legacy, except with the, with the exception of the Porta Cashier, has been on the interior of the building. And people driving by have no idea what God's doing here. When we start doing the, 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 the parking lot, people are going to see things. And God uses that many times to begin to stir up people's curiosity, and it draws them into the life of the church to figure out what's going on. And I'm praying God does that. And so that's going to part of why we're going to be praying, because this really is a spiritual enterprise for us, all that we're doing. And I hope that you'll take it that way, and you'll approach it and plan on being here next Sunday morning um, and being a part of that time of prayer, we're going to be letting you out a little bit later next Sunday morning. That's okay. Restaurants will still have food, I promise you. So you don't worry about that. You might just have to go home a little later, but that you'll live. I promise you'll do that. Hey, we've been talking about making a difference. Uh, that when God saved you, he saved you, and he blessed you, that you might now be a blessing, that God might use you in his kingdom, so that you and I might make a difference for Christ Jesus that's why God saved you. That's why God established Seminole First Baptist Church, placed us here. It's his plan and purpose that we'll make a difference. One of the things we've seen, though, is that whenever you get ready to make a difference, you get serious about that, and allowing God to use you to make that difference, you can anticipate opposition. We've talked about the opposition that's come from without, um, with the attacks that would come and the discouragement that comes because of those things. We've talked about dealing there. This morning, I want to suggest to you that to make a difference, you must deal with the external attacks that we've already talked about, but also with the internal conflicts. The internal conflicts. When you get to chapter 5 of Nehemiah, Nehemiah opens up there in that fifth chapter, almost like like the front page of any major city newspaper. Work on the wall halts. What Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem could not accomplish with their external attacks as they ridiculed, as they thought to shame, as they criticized, as they lied, and as they even threatened to attack. Well, they could not stop, stopped anyway, without their interference. And it stopped because of internal conflict among the people themselves. As the workers on the wall stopped working, went on strike, complaining of unfair conditions uh, un- unfair conditions, and, and of other difficulties. That's what we're going to read about here in chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. We'll read through verse 13. Would you stand with me and follow along in your, in your copy of God's Word? <coughs> Nehemiah 5, beginning with verse 1. And there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. 
There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the, uh, for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to become slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, What you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them uh, money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it, and we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priest and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this, uh, this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning grateful for who you have called us to be in Christ Jesus. And Father, grateful that you have given us meaning and purpose in Christ Jesus so that, Lord, you might work in and through our lives to make a difference in our community. Father, that we might partner with you in your kingdom's work. That, Father, we find meaning, we find purpose in that. And yet, Lord, we see sometimes there are things that get in the way of what you've called us to, and most of the time it's, it's us. We're the problem. Lord, I pray this morning that you'll not only help us to see that sometimes we're the problem, but, Lord, you'd also show us your solution so that we might again be a people through whom you might make a difference in our community. Father, we want to do this for your glory and honor's sake because you're worthy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. It seemed like just building a wall around Jerusalem wasn't that big a deal, but it really was because as long as the walls remained broken down, the people of God were reminded of their failure. They were reminded of their shame. Not only that, they became a reproach to their neighbors who could then come easily into the city, do what they want to, influence them the way they want to, attack them if they wanted to. Building the wall was a big deal. It was an important deal for the, for the city of Jerusalem, for the residents there in the city, because God was seeking to restore and revive his people. And he wanted to revive and restore his people, and the built, rebuilding of the wall was a vehicle that God was using so that now through that, God might be able to be glorified through his people. A restored and a revived people serve God in his glory. We constantly 
if we're living the lives as God intended for us to live, as we're living according to his plans and purposes, our lives bring him glory. But whenever our lives stop doing what God wants us to, we fail to bring him glory. Does that make sense? And one of the greatest reasons that begins to happen is because of internal conflict, even more so than the external conflict. Whenever God is, starts, calls you to do something and you decide to get serious about it, I promise you the enemy of your soul and all of his willing accomplices are going to come at you. And if they cannot stop you through discouragement, if they can't stop you with all their external attacks, Satan is going to sh- change strategies and he's going to begin to start seeking to attack you from within. I see it in churches all the time. There's a major, there's a, there's a very um, popular preacher. If I mentioned his name today, you would know who I'm talking about that I read recently was fired by his church. He and the board of his church have been at odds with each other over some time. There's an internal conflict, and it's intra, inter, rather, personal conflict. I-N-T-E-R, interpersonal conflict. Two people can't get along with each other. I spell that for a reason. You'll see in a moment. But they can't get along with each other, and they, they can't agree. It, it, it's not just little simple little conflicts. Now, this may surprise you, but Marilyn and I don't always agree about everything. Yeah, yeah I know. You thought she was always right. Well, she's not always right. Sometimes she's wrong. <laughs> now, if I go in it with that kind of an attitude, I promise you we'll never have any kind of peace and harmony in our home. But, but just because we don't always agree, we're still able to know how to work together and to compromise and to, to make those, you know, make, and we still live together peacefully. What happens a lot of times, though, is that people, because of their interpersonal conflicts with each other, it, it disrupts the fellowship. They let it get to too great a, a point, and they, they just can't live together anymore. Some people divorce. Some people just live miserable with, with each other and kind of lo- like to see if they can't make the partner miserable for the rest of their lives. I don't understand that, but I've seen it happen. In the life of a church, a church will split or fire a pastor. or work. What happens? Satan has been able, through inter- interpersonal conflict, to destroy the fellowship of the church and always disrupt and distract the church from her mission so that the church cannot be as effective in the mission to which God has called her because of the conflict. Now, something else I've noticed about this inter, interpersonal conflict, in almost every case that I can ever talk, talk to you ever about, it was brought about because of intrapersonal con, conflict. Okay, interpersonal, two, two parties can't get along with each other, interpersonal conflict, intra speaks about what's going on inside of you, I-N-T-R-A. What's happening is a child of God is not living as a child of God. Who you are in Christ is not how you're living your life. It is a conflict that goes there. James describes it this way. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? That last phrase, that war in your members, he's talking about that intrapersonal conflict the Holy Spirit lives within me because I'm a child of God and the Holy Spirit lives to always glorify God to lead me to be obedient to God but I and my fleshly selfish self-centered 
attitude, begin to start thinking, I'm going to live the way I want to live instead of the way God wants me to live. And there's conflict between me and the Holy Spirit. And I experience intrapersonal conflict. And as I said, almost every time I found the kind of intrapersonal conflict that begins to disrupt a fellowship of a church and distract that church from her mission, there's always one or more parties that are guilty of inter, intrapersonal conflict. There's another word for that conflict. You know what it's called? Sin. Sin will always stop God's work in the life of his people. It gets in the way. It disrupts what God wants us to be and what God wants to do in our lives. Nehemiah, as he examined the conflict that was taking place in the lives of the, the people of Israel, as he began to stop and look in his own life and, and what was happening there, came to the conclusion there was interpersonal conflict due to intrapersonal conflict because of sin. And he knew it had to be dealt with, and you and I need to deal with it too whenever it pops up its head in the life of, of our church. But we also need to do it in our own personal lives and other relationships that we have. It, it's not always about church. Sometimes it's about a marriage. Sometimes it's about a family. Sometimes it's about getting along with the people you work with or the people you go to school with. Anytime your relationships are, are interrupted by that interpersonal conflict, you need to deal with what's the problem. So Nehemiah did, and he gives us an example of what we need to do. Number one, you need to define the problem. It's not enough to say there is a problem. Remember Apollo 13, as the, about the second or third day of that moon flight, um, there was a, an explosion in the service uh, module that had a lot to do with what happened in the command module. And so the, the astronauts radioed back to uh, ground control what words? Houston, we have a problem. You know what? Houston needed to know there was a problem. But just the words, Houston, we have a problem, were not sufficient for Houston to help to contribute to the solution to the problem. Houston needed to know what exactly had happened. The oxygen tank and the service uh, uh, module ha has, has exploded, and it's impacting what's happening in the command module. They needed to know that before they could ever begin to deal with that. So when, if you've got a, these problems taking place in, the life, in your life with someone else, with your church members, your church family, you need to specify the problem. Another way of saying this is you just need to name the sin. If there's, there it is, you've got to figure out what it was. The work on the wall stopped, and Nehemiah got angry. Why did he get angry? Was it because the people began to start complaining? You know, just constant complaining, constant whiners. That might have been a part of it. Did he get angry because the wall, the work on the wall had stopped, this work that God had placed within his heart? He had this deep conviction this had to be, be done. It stopped, and now he's angry because the work stopped. Just what was going on there? What's interesting is that he got angry. I want to say something to you. There are times when you and I are going to get angry. And anger is not necessarily a sin. Most times it's not. That anger just lets you know that something's wrong. And you need to figure out what is that's wrong. What happens is, usually it's the way we express our anger that becomes sinful. Paul wrote to the Ephesians and said, Be angry, but do not sin. 
Don't let the sun go down on your anger and you give Satan an opportunity to get a foothold in your life. So anger is not a, is not a problem. It's what you do with it. And I want you to notice what Nehemiah did. At first, he did nothing about it. He didn't express it, but he took some time to stop and consider what was taking place. Can I suggest to you that we would do ourselves and our relationships a lot of, uh, uh, just a, a big favor if we would just learn to just, not just to spout out the first time we start feeling anger, that you just stop long enough and stop and ask some questions, you know, like, okay, what's going on? Okay, I'm angry. Do, do I really have a right to get angry? You know, there's sometimes we get angry, we really have no right to be angry. But, but do I really have a right to get angry? Uh, okay, there's, there's a reason to be angry here. What am I going to do about and, and Nehemiah did that. And Nehemiah discovered something. He discovered what all the problems were. The problem were that the people were hungry. They were spending so much time working on the walls, they weren't in the fields. There was a fa- therefore, there was a famine. They, they needed money to buy food, and they were mortgaging and selling their houses and lands. The king's tax placed such a high burden on them, they were actually borrowing money to pay their taxes. I tell you what, when you're borrowing money to pay your taxes, you're, you're, in, pro- you're in trouble. But there's even more than that, though. In order to have the money to pay their taxes and to buy the food, they, they were selling their children into indentured slavery. There was the, the, the Old Testament law provided for a way in which you could kind of sell yourself into an indentured slavery, but it was always intended to be temporary until you could pay the money back that you... But they couldn't do that. They could not redeem their children because of all the other financial problems and then Nehemiah found out what the real problem was. The nobles and the rulers, the people that had money, were lending money and lending grain at interest. And God's law had been very clear. They were not to charge interest, or usury is how, is how it's stated here in the New King James Word. And yet they were doing so in direct conflict with the Word of God. Nehemiah confronted that, and that's what you and I've got to do, is is to confront the problem. But before you confront the problem, go back, let's go back for a second and ask the question. When you begin to start thinking about the fact that you've got a problem with somebody, do you ever stop to think that maybe you might be a part of the problem? If you look at, at, at what Nehemiah said here in verse 10, he said, I also with my brethren and my servants and lending them money and grain... Please let us stop this usury. You know what Nehemiah is saying? <laughs> I'm guilty too. I, I got a role to play in this. You ever stop to think about if you're not getting along with somebody that it might not be the other person's problem, it might be your problem? I like John Maxwell. He talks about a guy named Bob. And he says, you know, if Bob's got a problem with Jim and Bob's got a problem with Sue and Bob's got a problem with Bill, and Bob's got a problem with Mary. Bob's got a problem. But what happens is usually Bob thinks everybody else has got the problem. You ever stop to be, just be humble enough to acknowledge that maybe, maybe the sin, the problem, lies with me? Well, once you have simply specified the problem, as I said, you need to confront the problem, and that's what Nehemiah did. He said, you know, you're charging interest to your fellow Jews. That's wrong. Both in the book of Leviticus and in Exodus, God's word was very clear. Do not charge interest to your brothers. Very clear. 
They were trying to make permanent slaves out of their fellow Jews. God's word was clear about that as well. They were not to do that. You go back to, again, Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy. There was very clear instructions about that. <coughs> but what really was bothering Nehemiah was that the fact that they were God's people, and as God's people, they were supposed to be holy like God is holy, which means they are to be distinct just as God is distinct. They are to be different from the rest of the world. The way they were behaving made them no different than the rest of the world altogether. You ever stop to think about sometimes the way that we handle conflict within the life of a church or conflict in our marriages and, and the fact that sometimes you can't tell who's a Christian and who's not a Christian by the way that people are acting in those situations. Friends, that's doubly wrong. We are to be holy just as God is holy. And so the way we handle our conflicts is supposed to be totally different than that. But you know what the real problem was here with these people? God's word had been clear about what they were supposed to be doing and how they were supposed to be relating, relating to one another, and they were indifferent to the word of God. You know what that means, don't you? They knew what God's word said, and they didn't care. You ever somebody say that? Well, I know what God's word says, that, says, but do you know that indifference to the word of God is no different than opposition to the word of God? Which means, therefore, if you're indifferent to the word of God, you're just as sinful as if you were in open conflict and rebellion against the word of God. And that was what was going on. Sometimes that happens in our lives just as well. I, I just want to know, when you get confronted with sin in your life, how do you respond? The rulers, the noblemen, when Nehemiah confronted them, said nothing. You know why? There was nothing to say. They were guilty. He got them. But what do you do? Do you deny? Oh, no, that's not. That's, do you trivialize? Oh, that's not a big deal. Do you seek to excuse, justify your sinful behavior? It's amazing how many Christ followers do. Do you get angry at the person who, convey, who brought the, the accusation? The, not the accusation, the truth who confronted you with the truth about sin in your life. You ever seen that happen? Trust me, if you were a pastor, you'd see it far more often than you want to. People get angry because, I disagree with what you said this morning in the pulpit. Well, I'm sorry, you didn't disagree with me. You disagreed with God and his word because that's what God said, not me. But people get, or do you humbly accept the truth and acknowledge, I've sinned. We have a promise in God's word. If we'll confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 32, verses 1 to 5. David talks about how blessed it is to be forgiven of sin. But he also talks about when he would not confess his sin and how that unconfessed sin in his life began to eat him up until finally he agreed with God about the sin in his life and began to start experiencing the joy of forgiveness. We've got to confront the problem. Secondly, we've got to determine the solution. And the solution is just really simple. When there's sin in your life, when there's opposition to God in your life, when, the, when your lifestyle is creating conflicts in the fellowship, stop. It's called repent. 
And that's what you got to do. You got to stop what's wrong. You determine the first determination of the solution is to stop what's wrong. Nehemiah called the people together, the elders, the rulers. He said, "This, uh, this, uh, this usury, it's got to stop. Let us stop this usury. It's got to stop. It's got to stop when? Two days from tomorrow? No, no, no. Two weeks? No, no, no. Now, stop it. Stop it now." You know how important it is when God speaks to you about a sin in your life that you respond immediately? You know why? Because if you don't stop and respond immediately, the chances that you'll ever respond get less, get less and less each day that you do not obey him. To the point that you get so custom, accustomed to this sin in your life, so tolerant of this sin in your life, there'll be no more conviction about this sin in your life and there'll be no power to change in your life. you got to stop it cold turkey. You know, folks look at me and say, that's impossible, Pastor. I can't do that. Well, I've got a word to you. You're right. You can't. But that's why Jesus specializes in life transformation. And he can accomplish it in your life like that. I got permission from Pat Hooker and from Scott to talk about her husband, his dad, Stan, who went on to be with the Lord several years ago. But when he got saved, the very day he got saved, he took the cigarettes out of his shirt pocket, he watered them up and threw them in the garbage can, never picked up another cigarette. He went home and poured out all the alcoholic beverages they had in the house, poured them down the drain, never touched another drop. And God began to start changing his language as well. What Stan could not do on his own Jesus Christ in stand could. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. He specializes in helping us with our transformation, our repentance. And then you need to make restitution where possible. I said where possible. Not always is it possible to make that restitution. But that's what Nehemiah told the elders to do. They needed to, if they'd taken land, they needed to give the land back. If they had charged interest, give the interest money back. The people had borrowed, you know, had, had lent them food. They were to return what they needed to for that. That was fair business practice. But they were to give back the interest. If they had taken anybody out on as a slave, they were to set that person free. If they had taken any land, they were to give the land back. They were to make restitution for the wrong that they had done. Well, what does that mean for you and me and in terms of our relationships? Well, it's real simple. If you've stolen, give it back. Return what was stolen. If you've lied, confess that you've lied and now tell the truth. You, you just seek to, where you can, undo the damage that you've done. Now, I realize that not always can we undo all the damage, but where we can make restitution, we ought to make restitution. It's important to do so. But having said that, I need to say something to you, those of you that you're on the other end. You're the one that was hurt, harmed. You were the one that was stolen from. You were the, What if that person never makes restitution what if they never come to you and say i'm sorry I, I was wrong what if they never come and say please forgive me are you therefore now at liberty to continue to harbor resentment and, and unforgiveness against that individual if you have been saved this is real important if you have been saved then you have been forgiven you agree with me, agree with me about that now here's the part where you may not dis, uh, may not agree with me but it's not me you're disagreeing with. You're disagreeing with God if you don't agree with this. That's a bold statement, but I'll stand by it. If you've been forgiven, 
you have no option but to forgive. Well, you don't know what they've done to me. And here's something you need to hear. It doesn't matter. What have you done to God? Well, you don't know how much they hurt me. Do you not realize what your sin did to Jesus Christ? Go back to Good Friday and you look at the treatment. That's what your sin and my sin did to our Savior. And the very first words out of his mouth from the cross were what? Father, forgive them. If he can forgive us, do you not think he can enable us to forgive one another? It's not an option. It's not an option. We must forgive. Then you need to declare your intentions. People, we're not living like the people of God. Nehemiah called them to account for it. And then he called them together, and he did so publicly so that they could also publicly confess what they were doing that was wrong and publicly agree to start doing what was right. Do you know how important it is to God that you and I live together in unity? Jesus said in, in uh, John chapter 17, go back and read about verses 20, 21, that our unity reflects on him. Because when you and I live together in peace and in harmony, the world will then look at him and realize he is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Go back and read it. It's there. It's, it's real clear. Therefore, it becomes important that you and I have the kind of attitude that the Apostle Paul called for the believers in Rome to have. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, and if you're taking notes, you need to note those, those, that passage, Romans 12, 18. It says this, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now listen to what he said. As much as is life with you. Now, you may go to somebody and seek reconciliation. You may go back and even do restitution and try to resolve that conflict. And they may, in their pride and arrogance, and that's what it is, pride and arrogance, which, by the way, are also sin, in their pride and arrogance, they may say, no, but you've done what God's called you to do. You've, as much as possible, as much power lies with you, sought to live at peace. And, and at that point, you're set free. You, you don't, you've tried. You leave it there. Pray for them. But you no longer have to carry the guilt and the shame about a broken relationship. You sought to do what you knew God was calling you to do. But as much as is possible, you seek to live at peace. It amazes to me how many people want to live with chips on their shoulder, want to live with thin skin, looking for an opportunity to be offended so that we can be in conflict with somebody. I would suggest that somehow that's sin too. And it needs to be dealt with. But they had resolved all those issues. They were coming now to, to declare their intentions to live at peace with each other. And the first thing they did was they covenanted with God. You find it in verse 13 where Nehemiah takes the fold of his robe and he shakes it out. And he basically says, we just made an agreement. We're going to stop all this usury. We're going to stop uh, taking advantage of our brethren. We're going to stop all of our self-centered uh, and, and, and greedy ways. And we're going to start living as brothers with each other. We're going to start treating each other the way God's word says. And he says, and if we don't do this, may God do this to us. And he shakes it out. It's called a, 
prophetic enactment. And that's what he was doing at that point in time. But they were saying together and agreeing that God has already told us how we ought to live with each other. And now we're going to covenant with God. We're going to live that way. Can I talk to you about covenants for a moment? You know what a covenant is. It's an agreement two parties make about how they're going to live with each other, how they're going to get along. I'll do this and you'll do that. Now, when it comes to a covenant relationship with God, you and I never get an opportunity to sit down with God and negotiate the terms of the covenant. Now, if Tom Godfrey and I decided we are going into a covenant, we'll, we'll negotiate the covenant because we're on equal terms. But when it comes to God, God sets the terms. You don't negotiate the terms of the covenant. Isn't that wonderful? I think it is. Because when God saw me in my sin, he came to me and says, Mike, if you're willing to confess your sin and to put your and turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, believing that he did die on the cross for your sins and he rose again from the grave and you're going to trust him to be Lord and Savior of your life, then I'll forgive your sins and I'll give you a brand new life. That was the covenant terms. Only a fool would turn that down. God says, you bring your sin and you give your sin to me and I'll give you my son's righteousness. Only a fool would turn that down, but yet people do it all the time. God sets the covenant relationship. When it comes to our relationships with each other, how we live together within the family of faith, can I tell you who sets the terms for how we live together in the family of faith? It's not, the, it's not a, that a board of elders sat down together and said, this is how we're going to live together. We take God's word, and in God's word, God has already given us the terms by which we ought to relate to one another. So every time we decide that we're going to be a part of the family of faith, you decide to become a member of Seminole First Baptist Church, Seminole First Baptist Church decides to covenant with you in that membership relationship, all we're doing is accepting the terms that God has already set for us in our relationships. We need a covenant with God, but it is important that we also covenant with one another. And what we do there is when we make public this commitment, we say it out loud. The elders, the rulers, the noblemen said out loud, we sinned, we're going to stop this, we're not going to do this anymore. Do you know how much power there is in a public declaration of commitment? There's a lot of power there. Do you know why? Because if I come before you today and I were to publicly make a commitment, there will be a lot of witnesses that heard me say that. Witnesses that are going to hold me to my word. You know why? Because we are accountable to one another and we're accountable for one another. And it, saying it out loud kind of has a sealing effect. Because I want to remember that Bruce heard me say that. And if Bruce sees me living contrary to what I said I was going to do, Bruce is going to come to me and say, I, I remember when you made a commitment that you weren't going to do that anymore. Or Scott comes to me and said, I heard a, you make a commitment. You said this is how you, and you've not been living that way. And you say, I don't want to be anybody treat me that way. I, I, I want, well, you don't understand what it means to be a part of the family of faith. Because this is one of the blessings of the family of faith, that we get to help each other grow up in Christ Jesus and being held accountable. And in every church that's healthy and effective in its ministry, they relate to one another this way. Where we lovingly speak the truth, lovingly confront, and lovingly repent and get back on track again. 
we covenant to live that way together. Now, I know we've gotten a long way from that. I know in Baptist life anyway, you don't hear by talking that way anymore, but we need to get back to that way of talking. Not because we're legalistic, not because we want to tell people how to live, it's because we love each other enough to say, what you're doing is wrong, and God's got a better way for you to live. Whenever you and I get serious about making a difference, allowing God to work in and through our lives, God begins to bless us. And God begins to let us in on what he's doing. But if we don't deal with our internal conflicts and our, and, and our, our interpersonal conflicts and our interpersonal conflicts, we will rob ourselves of that, both that blessing of being blessed by God and being blessed and being a part of what God is blessing. Therefore, we need to deal with your, our interpersonal and inter, intrapersonal conflicts God's way. God told us you need to define the problem. You need to de- name the sin. You need to determine the solution. Repent. Change. You need to declare your, your intentions. You declare them to God. You declare them to one another and let the sealing effect lead to the healing effect in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, you know us. You know our tendency and our self-centeredness to do life our way and then we run roughshod over somebody else and hurt feelings. and, And you know, Father, that every time we do that, We disrupt what you're doing and what you're wanting to do in and through our lives. Lord, I pray this morning that we would look into our own lives and be willing to ask if we might be a part of a problem. Whether it be in a relationship with our spouse and our children, with our relationships at work and the neighborhood, the Lord especially here in the life of the church. Father, if we're guilty, I pray that you would allow your Holy Spirit to convict us and then, Lord, that we would be obedient to stop. And then, Father, to declare our intentions to you and to one another. We're going to live at peace. We're going to be obedient to God. We're going to love each other just as Christ has loved us. And we're going to let the world see the difference that Jesus makes in our lives. Father, I pray that if there's any of these problems that are evident in the life of our church, you'll deal with them. Father, I pray if we see these problems that you would give us the grace and the love to care enough about one another that we would lovingly, gently, yet firmly confront the issue. And then, Father, I pray that you would give us the grace to change. I thank you for this word today, Father. I pray, Father, that it will have the impact on our lives that it needs to. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Been talking primarily. Been talking primarily. Been talking primarily. Been talking primarily. Been talking.